Hi there, welcome to the first episode of Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music inside and out. I'm Corey, I'm a music theorist, I run the YouTube channel 12 Tone. And I'm Noah, I'm a music journalist maybe? I run the YouTube channel Polyphonic. Yeah, and we've been sort of talking about making the podcast for like a long time. I think we first talked about this a year ago after we met at VidCon. This year we both sort of stepped back a little bit and finally have the time to do it. So yeah, I wanted to talk about music. We want this to be a place for just some kind of more loose conversational stuff and we'll see where it goes. I feel like there's kind of like two ways you can talk or there's really a lot of ways, but there's two main ways you can talk about music. And one of the ways is talking about specific bands and songs and history and stuff like that. And the other is talking on a more conceptual level. And while I think we'll do both, I think the goal is kind of to look more at musical concepts and how we approach them differently. I don't think either of us wants this to be like a review podcast or anything. I think that the goal is to just talk about music, at, as like you said, at a higher conceptual level. We have tastes, we have opinions. I'm sure those will be coming up, but like that's not as much what we're trying to do. Yeah, exactly. And and I think a good, what we're going to talk about this episode, I think is a as good a place as any to start because this episode we want to just look at um kind of personally because we have uh, a lot of shared taste in music, but we come from very different backgrounds. So we want to look at just kind of What's our process uh, when we find new music? Where do we find it from? What kind of music do we look for? And then what I'm really interested to hear about you too is just like, what happens when you listen to a song? What happens when you hear a song for the first time and you really like it and then you go in and you listen again? What's your brain doing? What are you listening for? These kind of things. I think that's kind of what we want to uh, explore on this first episode and hopefully it can help give you guys some tips. I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people are always asking me, like, how do I analyze music? Like, yeah. like, how do I see stuff on this level? And I think by peeking inside our brains a little, we can give some insight into that. Yeah. To start with the question of like how I find new music, I think the short and unfortunate honest answer is I don't nearly as much as I'd like to. Amen to that. <laughs> I mean, this is a thing that like I don't think gets talked about that often, but as as someone who works with music, music is my job, right? And so it's something that I, I love and I enjoy, but it's not something that's like relaxing in the same way that going and watching a TV show is. Because when I watch like t a TV show, I don't really have to worry about what's happening. My brain doesn't have those deep analytical like structures in it to try and like break it down. So it, I can sort of just shut off and enjoy what's happening. But when I hear a song, especially if it's a song I've heard a couple times, like as I've been working with music for over a decade now, first as a singer and then as a theorist. So my brain starts breaking down like, okay, what would I do if I had to sing this? What would I do if I had to analyze this? And it's it's a really rewarding experience. I don't want to like, don't want to imply that I don't like listening to music, but it's, it's something that like, when I want to relax, it's not the first place my brain goes. I agree with that completely. I think that's something that's really interesting. By virtue of working with music as a job, it changes the way you listen to music. And I completely yeah. agree. Sometimes I'll still listen to music um, uh, or like find music for pleasure. But way more often, like when I want to kind of tune out and relax, a lot of the time it'll either be like going back to music that I am very comfortable with and don't really have to think these thoughts on or listening to podcasts or watching TV, things like that. Yeah. One thing that I have sort of found is that if I can get my brain to shut off just a little bit, then I can go listen to music and relax. Like this is one of the things I've, I was sort of thinking about because like 
the one area that I would always like still listen to music. And one of the main ways of discovering new music at this point in my life is listening to the radio when I drive, because like there's enough focus in driving that I have to be like paying attention to the road. I can't be sitting down and saying, oh, is that a tritone substitution? Whoa, did you just change keys? Like I can't do that because I have to be watching the road. And so it becomes the sort of background music that most other people experience when they listen to music most of the time. And I want to be clear here. When I talk about this, I'm not bragging. Like, I'm not trying to be like, oh, but yeah. my brain is just too evolved for your like normal commoner music experience or anything. It's not inherently a good, th- good or bad thing. It's just a reality of the way my brain works. I think it's really interesting already because my brain does similar stuff to yours, but it's really interesting because... What you're talking about when you hear a song and you're like, when you're kind of dialed in, when you're not driving, it's not background music, and you're talking about, oh, that's a tritone substitution or things like that. It's interesting because my brain kind of does a similar thing, but in a different way, where when I hear music, a lot of the time what I'm trying to do is place it historically and culturally, hmm. and, and especially with lyrics, a lot of the time I'll like hear lyrics and stuff like that, but a lot of the time the first thing I do when I listen, when I hear a song that I like Rather than look at what's going on within the music itself, I kind of like pull back and I'm like, well, when when was this released? What year was this released? This was released <laughs> in 2008. Oh, yeah, no, I can totally hear the kind of like emo vibes that are that are still in it or like, oh, this was this was released by, I don't know, this political this artist who was active politically in this period. Oh, well, that makes sense. These lyrics kind of play around with uh. I don't know, like the civil rights movement or something like that, because a lot of songs play around the civil rights yeah. <laughs> movement. But I think it's I think it's really interesting uh, to hear you talk about the theory structure, because my brain is doing an analytical thing, but it's analyzing different aspects of the music. Yeah, no, that's I mean, that's really interesting to hear, because like I've always been really bad at thinking in terms of genres and eras and whatever, like it's always been like a huge weakness of mine and like for a long time as like I, I think you would have seen in the video i did about genres like a year and a half ago or something i i'm gonna interject here if you guys haven't watched that video go watch that video in my mind it is like the definitive take on genre <laughs> i keep wanting to do a video exploring like the breakdown of genre in the modern age but then i go back to Corey's video and i'm like well they said it better than i ever could <laughs> <laughs> thanks but but yeah no, it's just like a lot of that sort of philosophically came from this, like, just not really having a good, like, intuitive understanding of what people meant when they said something was a genre, right? Like, you know, I, I can sort of describe to you what rock is, right? Like, I, I have a sense. Yeah. Like, it's one of those, like, you know it when you hear it things, but when you get into, like, the sort of, like, more narrow things, like emo or whatever, like, so if the boundaries get super blurry and I've never been super good at just, like, categorizing in that sort of way. But this is the, I mean, this is a topic for a whole other day, too. But oh, yeah. the, even the thing with, the thing with rock is, like, Blink-182 is rock. And Pink Floyd is rock. Yeah. Like, if if you put Damn It next to Echoes... So's Chuck Berry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I think that's actually a topic we should return to yeah. for another day. Just talk about genre, because I'm so fascinated by it. But but yeah, it's interesting to hear that when you listen to music, you part of your brain isn't really trying to kind of, like, categorize it or place it within the genre, because... I, I mean, I don't necessarily think in genre, but I'm always trying to place within kind of movements or make connections of like, oh, that little guitar lick sounded like it could be influenced by Jimmy Page or something like that. Yeah, and I think that's partly, I mean, honestly, part of 
what drew me to music theory as sort of like, I mean, it's not that music theory doesn't consider cultural context. Like I don't, Oh, Oh, I don't want to say that at all. But, uh, but like, I think a lot of sort of the approaches to music theory and musical analysis that we do tend to be much more related to sort of taking, taking the thing as itself and trying to apply and trying to understand what it is instead of necessarily trying to place it as much within a bigger picture. And that's, just saying that is probably going to get me in trouble with a bunch of music theorists because, again, <laughs> ridiculous oversimplification. I feel like saying anything about music theory gets you in trouble with a bunch of music theorists. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. For reference, uh, this will probably be out a bit later, but we are recording this less than a week after the Journal of Shankarian Studies incident, for those of you who know what that is. So, yeah, just just talking about music theory is complicated. <laughs> Can you give for the, for those that don't know? I've like I've seen it going on on Twitter, but haven't really had the time to read into it. What's your like five minute Cliff's Notes study about what's going on with that? Okay, yeah, and this is completely unrelated, but uh, but yeah, I can take a run at it. Yeah, there's there's going to be a lot of tangents on this podcast. Oh yeah, what happened about six, seven, eight months ago? Last late late last year, I think in November, uh, was the Society for Music Theory's annual conference. And one of the plenary addresses, plenary, I don't know how that word's pronounced. I've only ever seen it written. But one of the like those addresses was by Dr. Philip Ewell, who was talking about music theory's white racial frame and how music theory tends to be dominated by models and theories based on specifically white music and by people who often were doing that very explicitly. And one of the examples he gave was Heinrich Schenker, who... If you don't know music theory, you won't recognize that name. But if you do know music theory, he's like basically one of the biggest names in modern music theory. He was almost synonymous with Western tonal analysis at a lot of high levels. A lot of those classes are just called Schenkerian analysis is the level to which he is a big deal. Uh, he was also a huge racist and his theories suck. And so yeah. that's that's an oversimplification. <laughs> But Ewell was calling attention to that and pointing out how this is often sort of swept under the rug because we want to keep using his models. We don't really want to address how he got there uh, because how he got there was very explicitly in an attempt to define the great German masters as the great masters of music ever mm. and just effectively prove that they made the best music. Anyway, he, he was called that out. And among many other points, he was discussing Schenker's racism and how that informed his theories. And then uh, a little bit after that, the Journal for Shankarian Studies, which is a relatively small but peer-reviewed journal published out of the University of Northern Texas, I believe, put out a call for papers for a special symposium issue as a response to Dr. Ewell's talk to sort of address those points. And from what I've heard, I haven't seen the call for papers, but the submission deadline was hilariously short and didn't give people enough space to work out thoughtful responses, which means that basically what they were asking for were people's knee-jerk reactions to having their hero called a racist, Oof. which, as you can imagine, didn't go well. Um, yep. That, that sort of that got disappeared for a while. And then around like last weekend, as of recording, this is going to be like a couple weeks ago when you hear this, advanced copies started to go out. Uh, to like the authors and whatever. And that's where people started to notice a lot of pretty significant problems. Like, like a lot of the papers are like pretty sloppy. Like there's one that's a single paragraph long, immediately concedes to not understanding the point, 
has no like inquiry or rigor to it, and then concludes that Dr. Ewell is wrong anyway. I saw you sharing and commenting on that one. Yeah, no, I was that one was like, it's not the worst paper. The worst paper is by Dr. Timothy Jackson. That paper is overtly racist in a lot of ways. The single paragraph one was kind of the most shocking because like I, I look at that as like, I, I can see why someone would write a super racist response to what Dr. Ewell did. That makes sense to like, I don't like it. It's disappointing, but it's not surprising. Yeah. But I look at this as like this serious journal published, again, a single paragraph. And then on top of that, like another thing they did was they published an anonymous paper, which for those of you who don't know, like the academic publishing world, that doesn't happen, especially like a paper that's criticizing another academic, another scholar. Like you you put your name on that if you're going to say that sort of thing. And they just sort of let let whoever this was just publish anonymously. And to be fair, I get it. I would be embarrassed to put my name on that too. But uh, just like, but the worst part about it, yeah. and this is the part that I think made the most people the most upset, is that in this sort of thing, you know, they're arguing, their argument, their basic premise is that they are trying to promote scholarly discourse, right? And so if you're building an entire issue that is specifically a response to Dr. Ewell to promote scholarly discourse, what's one person you might want to include in that discussion? Just off the top of your head. Dr. Ewell? Yeah. Dr. Ewell? No one reached out to him. They, he's, he's confirmed oh this in multiple God. places. No one talked to him. He apparently consulted on a draft because one of the people who was submitting reached out to him. I was like, hey, would you mind taking a look at this? Uh, that was like, there were, again, there were some papers in there that were supportive of him. Yeah. I say again, I'm not sure I said that before, but like by and large, they put together this thing that was a uh, response to and largely a repudiation of Dr. Ewell and didn't invite him to respond. And basically anyone <laughs> with any interest in sort of academic ethics is pretty mad about this. this is the sh yeah. shortest Cliff Notes version I can do of what's going on. I'm already enraged from that Cliff Notes version, so I'm sure when I do find time to dig in, I'm going to be even angrier. Yeah. But, but now that we've talked about how theory is necessarily tied to cultural things, let's go back into talking... <laughs> about why you like theory because it can you you, yeah. you can kind of divorce from some of those <laughs> things, right? It's less about divorcing from cultural context and more sort of about engaging with the work as itself. That makes a lot of sense. What you're talking about is sort of more engaging with the work as an object within culture, and I'm more talking about engaging as with the work as an enculturated object. If that makes sense, I, I think that makes a lot of sense, and it's interesting because I think there's different levels you can do that too, even when you're not talking culturally like i might look at a song and see where it falls sequenced in an album and that's something yeah. that again you could you could do from a theoretical perspective but if you want you can also just hone in on this song and just look what are these three and a half minutes trying to do and how are they trying to accomplish that yeah and that's one thing personally like for a long time i wasn't super into albums as a concept like, I, don't, I wasn't, like, opposed to them. I wasn't, like, no no one record albums, only singles. But it was just, like, when I listened to music, I would sort of, was much more just listening to whatever song I was interested in. Uh, that sort of changed as I've gotten older. But not not because I've gotten older. That implies it's a maturity yeah. thing. It's not. That's That, that sounded judgy. But, um, <laughs> but just, like, when I was, like, I mean, I, I grew up in the iPod generation, right? Like, yeah, we put everything on shuffle, whatever. Um, and so you just, you just learn to think of songs independently and it's like, oh, now I'm listening to, um, wish you were here. I think another really cool thing that you're able to do with theory that I'm always envious of, cause I just don't have the same kind of theoretical background 
is I find with your theory analysis that you're very good at honing in on like specific, not even just a specific song, but like a specific moment or a specific thing within a song. I remember you did a uh, a video on was it on immigrant song? Immigrant song, yes. Where there was, yes. Yeah, yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little? And yeah, and and how do you kind of like go about? Do you hear that when you're just? listening to the song casually or is it something you pick up when you decide that you're gonna dive more into the theory of it no well that one that one specifically was very well hidden and that took a lot of digging to find yeah uh but so basically just quick background for anyone who hasn't seen the video uh in the immigrant song chorus they're doing the chords are going like a b c i don't remember the qualities i think they might all be yeah. major I think they're all major. Or are they all minor? I don't know. Anyway, not important. Then underneath, John Paul... No, I think they're all minor. Sorry. Uh, John Paul Jones is playing this like really fast like walk-up run where he's going like from A up through the entire scale up to a higher A, and then he drops back down to the A and does it again. And then he does the same thing on the B chord and the same thing on the C chord. But on the second run up on the B chord, instead of going up to a high B, he slides up and hits a high C. And Jimmy Page actually slides up a six to the C, a 16th note early as well on the guitar. And I was just like, that that one I found, honestly, because I was trying to figure out what he was doing at all. Like, I was trying to really, like, yeah. tune into that. And so, I, like, I actually took the song, ran, like, a low-pass filter. Okay. Just to cut off everything above, like, 200 hertz or so, so I could only really get the bass. It was just, like, I slowed it down to, like, 50%. and was just listening, because, like, I was... This was at a time when I was still doing MIDI, and so I had to actually write, like, program up exactly the notes that I wanted to be played, and I wanted them to be the right notes, because if I got them wrong, someone else... Someone would notice, right? And I don't want to be wrong in my videos if I can avoid it. So, I like, I really wanted to figure out what this bass riff was. And so, like, I was mostly trying to figure out what scale he was playing. But, like, I happened to notice when I got to the, the end of the B, I was just like, that's not a B. It's supposed to be a B. And I was like, went and looked and was like, nope, that's still not a B. And tried to play it. And I even, like, ran it by uh, Tim Blay from Acapella Science, who's a friend of mine. And I was just like, has really good ears. And I just, like, I, I talked to him. I was just like, hey, are, are you hearing a C here? Is that is that what's happening? Am I Am I making this up? And he was just like, no, there's definitely a C there. And so I had to just sort of take this and be like, this is a thing that I've never noticed. I think it's almost entirely unnoticeable. It doesn't actually, I, I didn't have an explanation for it. I was just, I was so confused by like, why? Because clearly because Paige was doing it and because the chorus happens a couple of times and he does it every time. This is a conscious decision. This is intentional. Yeah. Like it's not just his finger slipped to the wrong fret or something. He did this and I just like don't know why. That's the thing that baffled me watching it. When you're like, okay, he hits the C. You're like, okay, well, maybe that was just a mistake. But it's like every chorus does it and Paige is echoing it. It's like, that is a conscious decision, and that's not something like like they they had to have spoken about that, yeah. right? Like that's a, like like they had to in the studio be like, on this one we'll go up to the sea. The best explanation I could find, and this is sort of I don't I don't tend to do theoretical explanations from artistic intent very often. Yeah, but because it's so subtle as, as an experiential thing, the audience I don't think anyone listening to this song notices it unless they're paying attention. I sort of have to rely on intention stuff. Yeah. Uh, and the best explanation I heard from like the comment section was someone arguing that like, you know, is may very well have just been like Jones trying to make it so that everyone who played the song tried to copy the song, played it wrong just to get a sense of like, just to be like, yeah, I, I beat you. You guys were all trying to play, play the song, but I, I know that it's actually a C and you played a B. 
Zeppelin have done weird things like yeah. that before. I always think of communication breakdown, where there's one more note than you think there's going to be on that. I remember in my high school band, we tried to cover it, and, like, it was, like, it's it's this song that you put it on, and you're like, oh, this is just, like, a fun, straightforward rocker, and then you look into the theory, and you're like, oh, no, this is actually really weird, and Robert Plant's vocals are, like, very... I, I remember our singer just having a hell of a time getting the rhythm down on it which is so weird because when you think of communication breakdown like if you're not paying close attention it feels like just like the most straightforward rock blues rock song there is right yeah no it's i like i think of like mountain song oh yeah it's just like has has the whole like intro in seven that just sort of switches to four like seamlessly into the verse I actually wound up like singing that at uh, for a friend's showcase at one point. I had been focusing on the vocal parts because, you know, that's the part that I have to learn. I'd sort of been skipping the intro and just like, oh, I'll work it out. And then I got in rehearsal and I was like, I was counting and I was just like, wait, what? What's happening? <laughs> like, where, where am I? Where am I supposed to come in? What are you doing? And then I had to go back. And be like, all right. All right. I got it. I listened to the thing. It's like, all right, this makes sense. I understand what's happening. Like, I had to sort of just like sit back and like actually pay attention to those parts as well. To like, just be like, I can't just count four bars. I have to count four bars. of I don't know if it was four, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But I have to count in seven or else this is going to be this is going to go real bad for me. <laughs> How often do you find yourself picking up these kind of quirks? just like naturally when you're listening to music, is it something that you often find yourself picking up on? Or is it something that you kind of need to tune into your theorist's brain and then you can start seeing them? Like I said, I I mostly when I listen to music that's not for work, I'm taking steps to shut down that part of my brain. Yeah. So I'm either driving or like one thing that I've done a lot that, you know, if, if anyone out there is like also has this trouble, like listening to like music without well trying to shut down their brain. One thing that I found really helpful is idle games. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But like cookie clicker, the, that sort of thing uh, that just sort of like is a visual thing that I can look at and like think about. But that doesn't actually require attention. Yeah. And so like that, that's been I, what I will often do is I'll put on an album and like load up an idle game. and so. And that's honestly one of the reasons I've gotten into albums is just because it's a nice unit of time to be doing that. I found that. And so when I when I am listening to music in that that sort of sense, I'm I'm not necessarily picking up on those things again, at least in part because I'm trying not to. Yeah. And so it's yeah, it's hard to then sort of take that and be like, yeah, similar to idle games. I actually I listen to probably the most music. When I'm just like in good times when I have friends over, but <laughs> nowadays um, w- when me and my wife are just hanging out and I'll just put some music on in the background and a lot of the time I'll just put on a song or two and then let Spotify run. And if something catches my ear, I'll like be like, oh, that's really interesting. I think Spotify has generally a pretty good recommendations algorithm. I also really like listening to the radio and seeking things out because I think and and again, maybe this is a whole topic for another day, but I think there's a danger in relying on recommendations album uh, algorithms to yes. curate really any kind of content. But I feel like especially with music, there's there's connections that like your friends that know these bands or the radio DJ whose job it is to listen to this stuff. There's connections that they might be able to make that that Spotify algorithm just isn't going to make. And obviously it goes vice versa. There's going to be some cool things you'll get from Spotify. But I think it's really important to kind of diversify. I know a lot of people that get a lot of their music from the like 
Spotify like made playlists. And I think that's great. I think it's an incredible way to find new music. But I also think it's important to kind of like if you're actively trying to broaden your musical horizons, at least if you're just trying to listen to some good songs or trying to keep up with what's new, a recommendations algorithm is probably fine. But in my mind, if you're like actively trying to broaden your horizons and seek out new music, sometimes you need something that's human curated. And I love the radio for that. Yeah. And I also think like on top of sort of there being connections that the algorithm will miss, there's also just unconnected songs that you might like. Like this is one of those things like you and I have talked about jazz. I don't listen to a lot of jazz, but like Diane Reeves' Old Country is one of my favorite songs. It's absolutely beautiful. And like if I was started from like Rob Zombie, which is like music I yeah. listen to a lot. And it was just like, all right, um, Spotify, recommend me a song that's like this. And it's like, oh, here's Power Man 5000. And it's like, all right, recommend me something like this. It'll keep going and it will never get to Diane Reeves. It just yeah. won't. And like no one else would either. If I asked you for songs like, oh, I really like Rob Zombie. What should I listen to? You wouldn't be like, you know what you should check out? Diane Reeves' Old Country. Like that, that's, <laughs> not a, that's not a coherent recommendation. Exactly. But I still love both songs. And so I think that you sort of if if you are relying on these sort of reinforced systems, then you wind up sort of getting stuck in these like local maximums uh, to borrow a statistics thing. Uh, is that statistics? You know, uh, math. Um, yeah. <laughs> but you sort of have these points where it's just like you're just getting more and more of this thing that, you know, works. But there could be something com- else completely unrelated that sounds entirely different all the way like over in a different genre or whatever that like you're never going to encounter that way. And so just. Yeah. Adding in like to to borrow from that sort of like um sort of game theory stuff. Like sometimes it's useful to just sort of shake it up, throw in like throw in like a random generation, random number generator thing to like push you in a different direction to like try something else, see what happens, see if there's like another thing over there that might also be good. And then and that uh, was one of the nice things that the radio did, which obviously I, I wasn't listening to like a lot of jazz stations or whatever, but like yeah, was listening to pop stations and stuff that I like I wouldn't necessarily like seek out but that's for instance how i found billy eilish who i'm a huge fan of like i think uh when we all fall asleep where do we go is one of my favorite albums of the last decade at least and it's just like that sort of thing i would never have found if i was just trying to find stuff that sounded like music i already knew i liked because there ain't there's some connection there but there's not a lot i agree and i think there's something else interesting on this too where it's just and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with genre i think so many things rely so much on genre but when i'm looking to listen to music when i'm in the in the mood and actually like want to explore some music or want to put some music on more often it's not genre that i want it's emotion and it's a feeling and a vibe like and and the thing is obviously certain genres like if i'm just looking for like a relaxed chill out vibe folk there's going to be a lot more folk music that's just like some person with an acoustic guitar that's very relaxed. Yeah. But then there's also going to be some electronica music. Here's an example. Like, on several of my chill playlists, I have Opeth songs. Yeah. And, like, that's something that's never going to come up on a Spotify. Like, Spotify's never going to jump you from Damien Rice to Opeth, but, I mean, the connections are there. They've yeah. both got the this kind of dark, moody vibe at times. And I think that's something that's lost when... You try to look at music by genre rather than by how it feels and how it makes you feel. But of course, how it makes you feel, I'm sure there are songs that make me feel completely different than they make you feel. So that's a tough thing to account for. Yeah, no, it's definitely like that's like one of the 
like fundamental problems with doing musical analysis is that like anyone's experience with music is going to be different. Like there's going to be associations that you have with a piece of music, either because you encountered it at a specific time in your life or because like it just speaks to a specific experience you've had that I haven't or vice versa. Or maybe it just sounds like other songs that you have certain associations with. There's all sorts of ways the musical experience can change based on things that have nothing to do with the music itself. That's one of the things that sort of has been talked about a lot in music theory circles recently is the sort of like to what extent can we describe music in a way that means anything? And this, the stance I've had for a long time is that you have to be subjective about it. You have to be so in, in the same way, sort of like with stuff you're doing too, like when you're interpreting lyrics, like may, maybe like you, you can come to some like more officially correct answer if you look at like artist statements or what, how they've described it or whatever, but then you're getting into artistic intent and that's a whole other thing. Well, and yeah. And then, and then there's artists like, like Bob Dylan, who is, kind of like willfully obstructive when describing his lyrics and there's a lot of people that kind of like i mean there's some artists uh and i love it when artists are very open and talk about their uh <laughs> lyrics because it makes my job a lot easier <laughs> a lot of artists they're just you just don't have that right yeah. i feel like that's there's something with lyrical analysis um wh- where so much of it is just bringing my baggage and and a lot of it is too is just like there's kind of what you were talking about with coming to everything subjectively. Every song you ever listen to is going to be in some way informed by every other song you've listened to. Oh, yeah. Like not obviously in some ways more directly than others. Like, yeah. oh, this reminds me of this song. But just the way that you have listened to music, the the music that you value, what you yeah. look for in a song, all of these things are just... There's all these little circuits going on in the back of your head. Um, so whenever you come to a new song, uh, you're coming with a lot of baggage. From a theorist perspective, that's also true of like musical vocabulary as well, like harmonic vocabulary, melodic vocabulary. Like the way you interpret certain gestures is affected in large part not just by what's happening in the song, but by what's happened in other songs you've heard. Like the the five one resolution, for instance. Is something that we we've learned, uh, and even less the less so in modern music, but like it has a specific association because we keep hearing it in specific contexts. I think that's another thing that's really interesting with theory too. Especially, I find songs that weren't written by people with a strong theory knowledge. A lot of the time, you'll see in theory analysis like weird, ambiguous chord centers and things like that. And I feel like when you're approaching that from theory, you might approach it thinking, well, this is in this key, while someone else is like, well, no, obviously it's in this key, and that's bringing your own musical baggage to it and to that interpretation. Yeah, and it's it's one of the things that I, I try and address when I talk about this sort of thing, but like, I mean, it's an argument that I think I've made to you before, is that like, you have these people who have no declarative theory knowledge but that doesn't really mean yeah. they have no theory knowledge because they've grown up in a culture that has a specific musical vocabulary and they've sort of internalized that vocabulary and so you get this sense that like like with Kurt Cobain is the classic example it's just like you you talk about Kurt Cobain and it's just like yeah he never took a theory class everyone to the best of my knowledge that's true but like yeah he still spent a lot of time learning how to play like the specific songs that his like guitar heroes and his musical heroes yeah. wrote like Jimi Hendrix and whatnot. And so you can see that in his music. If you look, you just have to like understand that you're not, he, he wouldn't point at a thing and be like, well, see, this is like encircling the tonic or whatever. And it's like, that's not a thing that Kurt Cobain would ever have said 
probably. Again, I don't know. Maybe yeah. he took secret theory lessons. I this possible. Uh, but like, you have this this thing where it's just like you never. He doesn't know that those are the words, and those aren't necessarily even the correct words. You can still sort of see the influence of the musical vocabulary that he has learned through his life learning to play the guitar and learning to listen to music deeply in a way that he could then imitate. What do you personally, when you look at something like that, something that was, because I feel like there's kind of a different reaction to, I feel like when you're like, if you're like listening to someone like John Coltrane or something, yeah, you, you can't listen to Coltrane and not really be aware or, or, or be like, 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 it's very clear that he is explicitly aware of these crazy theoretical yeah. things he's doing. He knows, yeah. Um, and, and I feel like it makes a lot more sense and it's a lot easier uh, for the average person to understand what theory analysis, like, like wh why you get things out of doing theory analysis of those. But I feel like something that a lot of people are always kind of struggling with it this is not me personally like i think i think theory analysis is really rewarding but but for you what's your experience of when you are able to kind of like apply theory to someone like a kurt cobain who ostensibly doesn't have knowledge what do you personally get from kind of finding these patterns and finding these things within that music so i've always held and i think sort of a guiding philosophy of my work is that the thoughtful, thorough analysis of art is itself art. I love that. Uh, I think that that's been a big part of what's made me want to do what I do. And so when I look at, like, honestly, like I, I prefer to look at artists who don't have a, like, a great theory background. Because you look at Coltrane, and there's just like so much of it that he's putting in there that I fi have trouble finding things for me to take from it. And that's, that's, that's personal. That's not saying that John Coltrane is a bad musician. Yeah. I just want to be clear on that point. In, any, of our, any of our musical takes on this podcast are our opinion and no broad statements. Yeah, no, <laughs> I think there's some pretty good evidence that John Coltrane was a good musician. Uh, but <laughs> Hot take. <laughs> <laughs> you can quote me on that. Uh, but yeah, no, I think like when I look at someone like Kurt Cobain or like an anyone who's just sort of writing from more of an expressive perspective than from a but that's not fair you know what i mean so someone who's sort of writing more instinctively and just doing a thing is like oh that sounds good and couldn't necessarily take you to oh that sounds good because i think that that gives me more of an opportunity to find my own meaning in it and so when i listen to those sorts of sorts of songs like a lot of what i'm getting out of it is my ability to get things out of it if that isn't an incoherent sentence, I'm not entirely sure it might be. Again, coming back to the whole the musical experience is subjective thing. If I'm approaching something where the person did things instinctively, then that gives me as an artist a chance to add my own interpretation in a way that isn't necessarily there. If like Tool is a great example of this. Like if I try and analyze a Tool song, what I'm doing is trying to tease out the thousand things that they did on purpose, right? Yeah. And that's not that interesting to me like that's I've, I've never been super into tool i get why people are but i'm not and so like when i try and like look at a tool song or like like lateralis and it's like oh isn't it super cool that they did the fibonacci sequence and it's like yeah but like they definitely did that in a specific way for a specific reason and they wanted to make sure you knew it and it's just like yeah it feels feels like i'm getting like nudged in the ribs it's like do, do you get it do you get it do, do you see what we did there we did the thing I guess the analogy I would draw is, like, was it one of the sculptors? I don't know, Michelangelo. Let's say it's Michelangelo. I was talking about, uh, so you you have a, a 
block of marble and the sculpture's already in there. It's just your job to take it out. It probably wasn't Michelangelo now that I've said it out loud, but you know the quote. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like, if I look at something like heart-shaped box, right? Like I'm looking at a like a large chunk of marble that I get to find the uh, the sculpture in. Uh, whereas if I look at tool, like they're just they're just touring me around the sculpture they already made. I think that's really cool because that kind of speaks to the way that I do lyrical analysis of someone like Bob Dylan. Yeah. Where like Bob Dylan or Nick Cave, Leonard Cohen, like a lot of these kind of like poet songwriters. I I mean I enjoy things that are very literal and I get I get a, a different kind of joy out of kind of like placing historically. But I really enjoy listening to a song where it's unclear what this song is about. Yeah. And then kind of pulling my meaning. And it's really cool, too, because when you're able to pull your own meanings, I find it kind of removes the art from time. I think when you're relying on these kind of like specific decisions that the that someone made or like that they were specifically commenting on this thing, uh, it kind of grounds it a little. And when you can remove that intent and apply your own thoughts on it, it can kind of like put it within a new musical context. Like like Kurt Cobain obviously never did anything in the same world as Billie <laughs> Eilish. I'm pretty sure he was dead before she was born, yep. which makes me old. Um, yep. <laughs> but at the same time, when you can look at Kurt Cobain things and find theoretical connections between Kurt Cobain and Billie Eilish... That's a cool, unique experience that is your own kind of thing, right? Yeah, for lyrics as well. Like, I was, one thing that comes to mind is uh, Jackson Brown's song for Adam, which is one of my favorite songs ever. In my head, for a long time, I've associated that song with my grandfather, who uh, had Alzheimer's and passed away a little over a decade ago. That's not in the text at all. Like, the text isn't even unsubtle. It isn't even subtle. Like, it's pretty clear what that song is about. And also, on that album... There's another song, Something Fine, that feels much more like it's about Alzheimer's. I also just want to, like, mention that Jackson Brown is severely underrated. Oh, wildly, yeah. In, like, the 70s rock scene. Like, I don't know why we don't talk about him more. Yeah, no, that's, I would love to talk about Jackson Brown more. I have yet to find a way to do that. But, but yeah, like, there's this this song that, like, is very clearly about, like, a friend who lost touch with and then died probably implied by suicide. It's not that part's not entirely clear, but it's implied. Yeah. Uh, and so I listened to that and it's just like very clearly not my relationship with my grandfather. But for some reason that that song always makes me think of him. And it wasn't a thing I listened to with him either. It's just it's an association in my head, but it's a really meaningful one. And the fact that it's not anywhere in the text and it definitely didn't match what Jackson Brown wanted to put in that song doesn't negate that it doesn't cheapen that in any way if if anything the fact that that's not in the song at all i think makes that connection more valuable it makes it more kind of it makes that song a part of your story in a very unique way in a way that it's not a part of anyone else's story and there's something really cool about having that kind of a private intimate relationship with a work of art i think that's why we love art yeah generally i i think it's really cool too just generally because you talking about that like very much when i connect with music it's always an emotional connection or it's usually an emotional connection first it can be like reminding me of someone i know or something or it can just be like listening to this song makes me think of reading a book on a rainy day and i like that feeling yeah and and 
I, I think that that's something emotions or vibe is a word that I like a lot. I really like to kind of hone in on a song's vibe and explore that vibe and build playlists around vibes and that kind of thing. And I think that that's something that's really rewarding about approaching music kind of from a personalized standpoint. And and often things that you'll approach personally, you'll find other people will like and relate to it too. And And that's fun to find those things as well. Yeah, I will say tangentially, like halfway through uh, that, my brain stopped interpreting the word vibe correctly and started thinking you were talking about vibraphones. <laughs> Made it much more difficult to figure out what you were trying to say. <laughs> just so I just had organized playlists around vibraphones and just like, oh, okay, do you. <laughs> vibraphones do have a very unique vibe. But yeah, no, this is one of the things like I've always argued that like musical analysis should prioritize and privilege the experiential side of things over the expressive side of things. You know, that's not to say that there's no value in looking at what an artist was trying to say, but I think for me, it feels much more meaningful not to look at what they're saying, but to look at what I'm hearing. And so trying to explore music from that perspective, I've, I've always felt has been much more useful and meaningful, which I'm, as always, is anything, any opinion about music theory, so I'm going to get pushed back on it. But, you know. I think it's interesting because I, I, I agree with you on that, but I also think there's a kind of, to, to speak to the other side of things, I think what I personally get out of placing a song historically is a better understanding, it's, it's, it's almost a better understanding of myself, because when I can place a song historically, especially right now, Something that I've been listening to a lot lately, I've been listening to a lot of jazz and I've been listening to a lot of 90s hip hop. Obviously, that's <laughs> because of everything that's going on right now with the Black yeah. Lives Matter movement. And what I really get out of finding and seeking out the historical backdrop of this is suddenly these songs feel very relevant to my personal experience and to the world I'm experiencing now because these historical events have inevitably shaped the world that I'm living in today. So I think that there that, that's when when I do when I kind of look into the more historical stuff around song analysis, I think the ends is still very much a kind of personal revelation. It's looking at the broader picture, looking at where this song fits, what this artist was trying to say and thinking, well, this is a really cool story and then zooming back in and being like how does this story impact the way that I go about my life? And in a lot of ways, I mean, right now, listening to a lot of this music is really helping me, in the case of this stuff, better understand just how little I understand about the yeah. Black experience in America. And I think that that's something that you can only really get from looking at the societal things. Again, we throw a lot of caveats here, but once again, <laughs> because music people are fickle, I'm not saying this is the only way to look at it. I'm not saying this is the superior. You can you can put on like Alabama by Coltrane or Mississippi Goddamn and listen to the musical things. But also, I find when you're able to pull out and look at the culture, it can help you understand the world you're in today. And and ultimately, art is about making you understand yourself and your relationship to the world. I mean, now we're getting into definitions of art, which is a whole... I think <laughs> art is at least often a reaction to uh, the artist's experience, which is going to be shaped by the culture they live in. And so, 
you know, you can get misinterpretations. And again, I don't want to imply that interpretations aren't valid if they don't match the artist's intentions. The obvious example here is Rage Against the Machine, right? Like you made a whole video yes. about this, uh, you know, like Paul Ryan, the exact machine they were raging against, uh, <laughs> said that Rage Against the Machine was his favorite band. And like, like people like keep accusing like Todd Morello of getting political as if that hasn't been his whole career. Yeah. And that so one's you, that one's insane to me. Just, just people. It makes no sense. It's just like, yeah, it's just like some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. What do you think yeah. you're saying there? Yeah. What do you think the message is? But like, uh, yeah, but, the land of the free. Whoever told you that is your enemy doesn't get much more blatant. I mean, it's pretty subtle, though. Like, what is what is that even about? You know. But, uh, <laughs> But no, it's just like you have these things where just like you can, I don't even necessarily want to argue that that's, it's wrong to sort of listen to Rage's music without considering the political implications of it. Like, because, you know, what does wrong mean in this context? But it is weird. I agree, especially with a band like Rage. Like, there's definitely things where like you could listen to like Charles Mingus's Fables of Faubus is a song about like the governor Faubus and like um the Little Rock Crisis. You can listen to it and it's just a good jazz song, especially if you listen to the instrumental version or, or, or even like, I don't know, there's a, there's a lot of songs that are tied to specific political or historical moments that you can kind of willfully ignore that stuff. But it takes an impressive amount of pointed ignorance to not notice that in Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. It's just like, what, what machine do you think they were talking about? It's yeah. It's like... Ultimately, like it, it's hard to condemn because you know, like I, I can understand how you get there, like yeah. And I think the, the the video you made goes into some detail about how you might get there as well. Uh, in terms of just like I try not to swear on my channel. I'm trying to decide if I want to care, but the f you, I won't do what you tell me. You know, <laughs> that that part is just it's a really powerful like aggressive anthem against whoever you think is challenging you. And so if you sort of don't really think too hard about the rest of it. Like, yeah. Then you sort of get this thing where it's just like, you get to shout the F word over and over again. <laughs> and it's just like, I get how you, you hear that. And you're like, Oh, that applies to my situation. And it's like, well, no, they're talking to you, but like, you can still see how that could happen. Yeah. But it's like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I would necessarily say that it was wrong, but it's like, it is weird. Is I guess the point that I'm repeatedly making. I don't think artists' intent is everything, but I also, especially with music, I don't think artists' intent is completely irrelevant. I think it can be. Look at my channel. I can't I can't yeah. very well have this channel and say that artists' intent is completely irrelevant because most of my videos are talking about artists' intent. And I think that it's just another field on which you can appreciate the music. I think in the same way that you can listen to a song and get a lot out of it without having any idea you can you can listen to living on a prayer and know that you love that big chorus without realizing that it's because it's a key change yeah. to use like the most basic example yeah but but when you do know that it's a key change you just get a bit more understanding of it you're like oh it's cool how that works it's cool why that works and i feel like that's something with historical context and artists intent to where you can you can get lots out of rage against the machine but when you understand the context that Rage Against the Machine, when you understand that Killing in the Name is written as a direct response to the Rodney King riots, personally, I find that adds so much value to the song, and that makes me 
listen to the song in a completely different light. Yeah, and I would completely agree. And I think sort of what I'm hearing, and you can correct me if if I'm wrong here, but what it sounds like you're saying, and this is something that I would 100% agree with, is that it's still fundamentally an experiential thing, but that knowing the intention, knowing the history can inform your experience. Is that... About... Yes, that's okay. absolutely that's yeah. that's that's like dead on what I, was I would one hundred percent agree with you there. And I, like I said, I think it's one of those things. Like I always get like super nervous when I like hear people saying, "Oh, you're listening to that wrong," and so yeah. that's sort of like the the instinct is like, "Well, you know, like Paul Ryan can listen to Rage Against the Machine however he wants," but like on the other hand, yeah, as as not a music theorist, as just a person. It kind of feels like he's listening to Rage Against the Machine wrong, yeah. you know? Like, exactly. I yeah. don't I don't want to like I want to add a lot of caveats on that, but just like I like I said I would agree with you that like any anything can inf- influence your experience and that's that's one of the things that I I don't tend to like get mad about people doing artistic intent stuff unless they're trying to use that as an argument against my experiential analysis, right? Like if I say this song yeah. is this and they're like, "Well, here's a quote from the artist saying this." And it's like, "Great, sure, you found a quote. This is still what the song means to me." Like losing my religion when I did that, I got a lot of people because like to me the song is just about depression. Oh yeah, uh, that's what it feels like to me. And, and people are like, oh well, no, it's actually about like Michael Stipe has said it's about this or this is. And it's just like, all right, cool. Those are great analyses. That's good information. I appreciate it. But in my head, the song's still about depression. Yeah, both both can be true. Yeah. I think that's something that always infuriates me whenever I like do do something and like mention what a song is about someone's like well actually in this interview this person said it was about that and i'm like yeah no it's about both it can be about many things yeah i mean like the beautiful thing about art is that like to use the example we've been going to killing in the name can be about the rodney king riots killing in the name is also very much about the george floyd protests yeah like uh, it's very much about um and and it's about stuff that happened before the, its era too. There's art art has a lot of meanings and that's why we love art. Yeah, it's not like the Rodney King riots invented police brutality. Like that's been a unfortunately. Thing. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah. It's, but it's, it, that's been a thing that, that that's one of the reasons that I think that song is so enduring is because it speaks to something that keeps happening. And Yeah, exactly. You know, where sort of you go back and you look at like protest songs that are more explicit and maybe it's maybe it's harder to like the one that comes to mind is like eminem's mosh i don't know if you're familiar yeah uh, yeah but like that that one is very explicitly anti-bush anti-iraq war in like that are hit by name and so you sort of you go back to it now and it's just like yeah i remember that anger but like and i like i as someone who was alive then that may still make sense to me but if you look at someone like like Alex Nickel, right? Like our yeah, yeah. good friend, 18-year-old Alex Nickel, would be hard for him to like like emotionally understand the implications of Mosh because like he can look back in a history book and be like, oh, this was happening. But like he wasn't there. And it's a different experience yeah. to sort of go back and try and do that intellectually in retrospect. Uh, but like if you look at Killing in the Name, Killing in the name, like you said, it speaks to things that were going on when it happened. It speaks to things that are going on now. It speaks to things that were going on well before it happened, too. It has that timelessness to it. I mean, hopefully not timelessness. Hopefully there is a point in time where this song is no longer relevant to current events. Yep. But it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. And so it still has that relevance that is just as important today because it's not like taking out time to be like, I hate the Iraq war and George W. Bush specifically, which is not to say anything bad about that approach to writing protest music either, you know? Yeah. Like I liked Mosh at the time and like, I still do, but like 
and I haven't listened to it in a long time. I just I'm thinking of it because it was in Lindsay Ellis's video about um, Bush era protest music. But uh, but like that sort of thing, because Rage wrote something that didn't specify that this is about the Rodney King riots explicitly, even though it was, we were able to move it forward to like uh, the George Floyd uh, protests and whatnot as well. And it still means something and has a has a direct application to modern life in a way that Mosh doesn't. Yeah. I think generally from this, I mean, as expected, we strayed from what we were discussing uh, almost immediately. Yeah. Yeah. But I think I think the general takeaways are the ways that you approach music, whether it's looking at the historical context, whether it's looking at the theory, whether it's pulling your own meaning from the lyrics, whether it's pulling your own memories that you have with the song. I think it's important to remember that I think there's this idea of being good at listening to music and i think there's this idea of like having a lot of theory knowledge or knowing a lot of trivia about a song or something like that makes you better at listening to a song but i completely reject that yeah um i just think these are all tools that you have in your arsenal and at the end of the day if you're listening to music and you are getting meaning out of it whichever way that you pull that meaning um and it can be multiple you can yeah. you can look at the theory and you can look at the lyrics all of this stuff whichever way you can pull meaning the fact that you're able to pull meaning and the fact that the art is able to affect your life is at the end of the day what's really important yeah like i get a lot of people and i'm sure you do too just like sending me things be like oh, i wish i could hear music the way you do and i'm like no you don't you want to hear yeah. it the way you hear it that's way more important yeah. <laughs> like and and this is the thing I would say, like like people like us and all the other shout outs to all the other great music channels, Adam Neely, Volksgeist, Middle Age. I'm pretty sure there are no other great music channels. I think it's just you and me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We are the kings. <laughs> um But I, I I use I use music video essays and um as as a great way to enhance my listening experience too. Like oh, yeah. if you want to be able to listen to music like us, watching our videos helps helps you get that way like i don't know about you but my videos are pretty much just like how i listen to music now yeah. i think that that's a bit of a chicken or egg situation but either way that's what it is yep <laughs> yeah no absolutely same if you want to listen to music like the pros listen to music that's, that's yeah. what the pros do you know absolutely i think that that's uh as good a place as any to wrap it up for our inaugural in is that how you pronounce it yeah i think it's inaugural yeah inaugural episode um yeah. i was thinking b before we do socials and shout outs and stuff i was thinking it could be cool to just to do you have any any suggestions for songs or artists you've been listening to lately that you think people should go give a shot i mean i, I don't listen to too many obscure artists like i mostly like but like i have been listening to a lot of clipping recently uh oh nice like i think uh Good call. I, I had sort of heard some of their stuff and i think your video on splendor and misery turned me onto that album and then yeah. like i went back and checked out because i'd heard some like i heard one or two songs from uh there existed an addiction to blood and like i went and looked that up recently and it's really good it has a fantastic yeah. album again billy eilish I've, I've, as always jackson brown um like yeah i think yeah. i think that's great I think just I think I think just it, it it could be cool to just end with like what are you listening to right now not not a huge yeah. endorsement or anything but just if people are looking um 
On my end, uh, Odetta, uh, hit or miss especially by Odetta. Um, she was a soul artist in the 60s. Uh, been listening to a lot of funk and soul lately. And you have listened to it before, um, I'm sure. But just put on some Stevie Wonder and your life will be better. Yeah. Like, like just everyone just always needs to listen to more Stevie Wonder. That's going to be my... Yeah. My my recommendation. Yeah, I went for to, this week. Did a video on superstition uh, recently, and I just like used that as an excuse to go back and listen to all of Talking Book, and I was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, this album's great. <laughs> I feel like Stevie Wonder is one of those artists where you forget just how good he is yeah. until you have a good like sit down session where because like you hear superstition and you're like that's great, but then when you sit down you're like oh my god every song he does is magic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so thanks for tuning in. If you want to get in touch with the show, uh, at Ghost Notes Show on Twitter, if you've got any ideas for topics, anything you'd want to hear us discuss, we can't promise anything, but I'd love to hear what you guys want to hear us talk about. This is very new and very free form, so we're all for these kinds of ideas. Yeah. And, uh, and where can people find you? YouTube.com slash 12-tone videos for the videos. Twitter.com slash 12-tone videos for... Just me ranting and rambling about whatever happens to cross my mind, usually YouTube or music. Uh, I have a Facebook, but I don't do anything with it besides post videos there, so I wouldn't really recommend checking that out. You can if you want. Uh, but yeah, YouTube and Twitter are where I'm most active. And obviously Nebula. You should watch videos on Nebula, I guess. Uh, if if gotta, you're, gotta if you're listening to in. this, if you're listening to this, you're already on Nebula, so... Uh... Yeah, yeah, and uh, if you want to find me, same deal. YouTube and Twitter are kind of my my main uh, things. I have a Discord as well. Oh, yeah, I have one of those. It's in my Twitter bio. Yeah, at Watch Polyphonic on Twitter, Polyphonic on YouTube. Hit me up. Um, You'll probably see me ranting about stuff on Twitter. Um, I get ranty from time to time. It's lots of fun. Yeah, any, any more thoughts? Music is good. That is a, a thought to end on. Thank you guys <laughs> so much for... Uh, <laughs> yeah thanks so much for tuning in i'm excited to see what we can do with this podcast <laughs>